0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Ivan Krashdev, the political scientist and leading speaker on issues of geopolitics, joins us to discuss the war in Ukraine and how the rise of middle powers is reshaping the world. Ivan Krashdev is joined in conversation by Philippa Thomas, journalist, academic and broadcaster for BBC News and others. Here's Philippa with more.
1: Hello and welcome. Today, we're going to encourage you to consider the bigger picture beyond the biggest global players, Russia, the US, China, to consider what our guest terms the middle powers like Turkey or India. Our aim today is to give you a more complete and nuanced picture of what's happening in geopolitics as it swirls around Ukraine. Well, I'm delighted to introduce our guest, Ivan Krashtev. Ivan is chair of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia. He is also at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna and Ivan joins us today from Vienna. Uh, Let me just say he's a founding board member of the European Council on Foreign Relations and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. And he has many books out in English, including After Europe and The Light That Failed, where you can uh, find out more about his thinking. But Ivan, it's a real pleasure to meet you. I've read you, but not met you before. So it's great to have the chance for us to have a long conversation and kind of dig into some of these issues. Uh, I want to start by saying that in the UK, where I'm sitting, and in the US, the tendency is to look at Ukraine through the lens of Russian relations with the US, with NATO, with Europe, a bit of a rerun of a, of a Cold War focus, uh, but there's much more to understand and many more players to factor in. So if you would, can we start with an overview of your idea of how complex this picture is?
2: Listen, exactly, uh, basically how the war looks like is very much depends from where you see it. Seen from Europe, and particularly big European countries, United States, this is the return of the Cold War. Uh, the enemy is the same. There is a clash between a democratic Ukraine and authoritarian Russia. Russians, when they started their special operations, the turn it is a war, were trying to convince the world that basically this is nothing. This is just a local conflict. Nobody else should be interested. And for the Ukrainians, This is very much a kind of a national liberation war. Uh, This is very much an anti-colonial war. So for me, the interesting story is why all these narratives are mixing and how we're going to see the international order appearing, looking at them. Listen, of course, it's a clash between democracy and authoritarianism, but unlike in the case of the Cold War, you're going to see that many of the democratic countries, which President uh, Biden invited for the summit of democracy were not in a hurry or eager uh, to sanction Russia regardless of the fact that basically Russia did something that was a clear violation of a major principles of international relations. So while in Europe we were very much trying to see the Cold War, these countries basically, regardless of the fact that probably they didn't like much what President Putin did, prefer to have a different position. And secondly, while many uh, friends of Ukraine believe that it is easy to go to the African countries and India and others and said, listen, this is a classical anti-colonial war. You should remember it. It was not very different to what happened to you. Many of these countries were saying, probably, but this is not our empires. Even more, some of the imperial powers we have been fighting against are now supporting Cuba. So for me, the biggest story was that how to make a sense of this new situation. And what I start to realize is that, while, of course, both United States and Russia and China uh, were trying to see this very much through the prism of a much more global picture. You have the rise of a middle powers. And I know that defining middle powers is not the easiest thing that can happen in the world, but... It is either the size of the country or economic or military power or even geographical positions that very much incentivize certain power to use this conflict to try to assert how important they are for their regions, how important they are for international politics. And from this point of view, you see India, very much classical, biggest democracy in the world, going into a coalition with the United States uh, uh, in other contexts, but totally unwilling uh, to change its relationship with Russia, very much benefiting from buying discounted Russian oil. You see Turkey that is trying to position itself much more in the position of a mediator and trying basically have a NATO member state that is saying, yes, we support Ukraine, but uh, we're not going to sanction Russia. So this pushed me to believe that while we are trying to see the future as the world which is going to be shaped by China and the United States, that we're going to be back to the kind of a New second season of the Cold War, we're seeing something different that all these middle powers, for whom basically decolonization was more important than the Cold War, are starting to use it and to, in a certain way, both suffer from the crisis of international order, but also to enjoy the new importance that they're getting.
1: So, Ivan, Turkey is a great example, I think, because Regid type Erdogan wants to be seen as a bigger leader globally. He wants to be of importance and perhaps of use. Uh, and so he's not prepared to take a role that uh, American-dominated NATO might want him to. He wants to define things for himself.
2: Totally. And this is the most important, because these middle powers, this is not the kind of a third bloc. This is not return to the non-aligned movement. All these countries, they are competing with each other, they're very different on the level of interest, on the level of values, on the level of political regimes. But what is important for them is they they want to reassert first their sovereignty their political identity, but also the importance and the relevance for the international order. And you see, Mr. Erdogan, on one level, Turkey was the country that was the first to give drones to Ukraine. On the other side, Turkey was the country that said, we're going to host Russian-Ukrainians negotiations. Turkey is a country which is not sanctioning Russia. Yet. You're going to see a lot of Russians and a lot of Russian companies operating from Turkey. So this kind of a move in which I'm using this crisis to say that I'm a sovereign power that had my own interest, and that basically you cannot simply treat me as the NATO member. It's very important for Turkey, but it's not only Turkey, look at that Saudi Arabia, one of the traditional uh, ally uh, of the United States. Basically, during uh, the, the latest uh, OPEC discussions, they much more came with a policy which was beneficial for Russia. They went for closer relationship with China, And on the other side of the same kind of uh, process, you have Russia's traditional allies like Kazakhstan, like uh, 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 Armenia or Azerbaijan, which are also very much using this crisis not to stay next to Russia, but basically to say, no, no, we're different. We have our own interest. We're going to play a totally different game and we are not ready to follow what Russia is going to say. So, So
1: that's risky, isn't it? whether you look at Kazakhstan and and the mighty Russian bear, or you think, for example, about India, which is enjoying cut-price Russian oil, but, you know, has spent a long time establishing better relations with Washington and, and to a lesser extent, with London. It's a risky business saying, "Mm, are you playing both sides? How are you going to be seen by the biggest powers?
2: You're absolutely right. And this is interesting. And the fact that in many of these countries, basically, even when they are not uh, fully democratic people are voting, it is a popular with the public. The idea that we're important, that we have sovereignty, nobody can tell us, we're not simply allied with one power or the other. It is important for the Turks, it is important for the Indians, but it is also important for the Kazakhs. And from this point of view, the political leaders are taking this risk the risk is real because all this game, this middle power activism can also end up badly for them. Uh, but this is... The new thing that, in my view, we're missing when we're trying simply to explain what is going on in the framework of return to the Cold War. This is a type of behavior which was not so typical for the Cold War. This is a type of behavior in which you have too many countries which are big enough, powerful enough, in order to believe that they can have these games. Uh, And you said that it's risky. It is risky. Uh, It is risky. On the other side, it is popular. And by the way, they're looking at each other. All these countries are saying, I can do it. I'm going to show to the Americans, to the Chinese that we're important, that basically they should treat us specially. And the fact that I'm interested in my own interest and nobody else is becoming something very popular, particularly outside of, uh, of the West. And this is something new, and this is something that makes me to believe that, well, now everybody's saying what the Americans will do what the Chinese will do. Probably the future of the international border is going to be much more the result of the activism of these middle powers, which get different strategies. Different resources and the Americans and the Chinese are much more trying to basically keep the situation under control than to act as a kind of these architects of last resort.
1: I will come to the Chinese but to, to focus on the Americans for the moment, this requires this reality requires more sophisticated and more flexible thinking um, and I'm aware from my American reporting of you know how much the US State Department for example, was beaten down in the Trump years. And I would like your opinion on how ready or how nuanced you think American foreign policy makers uh, can be at this point?
2: Interestingly enough, I do believe that uh, President Biden and his administrations were quite fast to adjust to this situation. Remember, just some months ago, he invited all these countries when he basically started his presidency on the Summit of Democracies. And then he looks around and the majority of these countries are not sanctioning Russia. Uh, But what the Americans are doing, they didn't get outraged. They didn't tell to India, if you're not going to follow us, we're going to put you secondary sanctions. They're not telling the Turks what you're doing is totally unacceptable uh, because you see that the NATO member states like Poland and others have been very much threatened by this war. But they try to see how they can use basically how they can arrange a situation in which, even if these countries are not going totally to ally with them, at least that they're not going to play uh, yeah. a game that is going to be destructive for the American long-term strategy. And I do believe this patience on the American side, which we didn't see in some other conflicts, this is very different than, if you are not with us, you're against us worked well. There was one case in which I to believe that uh, basically the White House be- lost its nerve, and this was after the Saudi Arabia very much came uh, with a cut of uh, oil production and with a policy that very much benefited Russia. But in my view, especially in this case also, the Biden administration has the right feeling that uh, this was a kind of early vote on the side of uh, uh, Saudi uh, leader in the uh, midterm elections in the United States so he said it as a kind of a personal hostile act, as a policy that was very much meant to hurt the electoral chances of the Democratic Party on the elections. But otherwise, in my view, the United States is much more patient and much more understanding some of these sensitivities and resentment that you can expect uh, knowing some previous behavior.
1: And we will come on to what could happen in the future in American politics and and with other elections. But just looking at the key power centers and how you judge the way they're acting on Ukraine. What about Brussels? What about Europe? This is a conflict on their borders. So many Ukrainians have fled. Um, You see this, uh, you know, from your position. How do you rate the way that Brussels is reacting?
2: Listen, for Europe, this was a major shock. And uh, this is something that people kind of from time to time underestimate, particularly when they're not living in Europe. It's not by accident that the most famous history of Europe in the second half of 20th century, Tony Judd's book, was called Postwar. Uh, European project did not simply come from the end of the World War II, but European project is very much rooted in the fact that a new major war is not possible in Europe anymore after the end of the Cold War. Europeans, we managed to convince ourselves that economic interdependence is the best way to secure the continent. We managed to convince ourselves that military power doesn't matter. And then suddenly, all this, crashed in a day. And from this point of view, European reaction was uh, quite surprising to many. And European unity stayed, but this was also very much the result of the American position. And also this was very much the result of the fact that suddenly uh, Europeans, who had been before it quite dismissive to the capacities and the willingness of the Ukraine to respond and to defend itself, was very much mesmerized by the Ukrainian miracle. Listen, many Europeans, most of the Europeans, experts and not experts, while being highly critical to what President Putin was doing, were sure that he's going to succeed. And in my view, this was the power of the Ukrainian resistance, created the moment which is very much transforming Europe. And this is what happened. And while this unity is there, of course, you're going to see major splits and kind of major differences both between the countries and within the countries. The East-West divide was very much exposed. You know very well that countries like Poland or the Baltic Republics were extremely critical to the way Germany and France have been uh, conducting their Russian policy in the last year. So from this point of view, it was a moment uh, of truth for Europe.
1: Talking of moments of truth. Do you think there's a potential parallel situation with China and Taiwan?
2: In a certain way, this is this is uh, this is the interesting story and this is the paradox because if you go before the war, and particularly if you see how the centered international political geopolitical gravity was moving from Europe to Asia, uh, you can see that this war was a kind of a strange war. There is a lot of speculations how much the United States were interested and not interested in the war. But everybody who has been following American politics, he knew that the dream of the Biden administration was to park Russia in order to be able to concentrate on China and Taiwan. Because obviously, from the geostrategic strategic point of view, from the logic of the major competition between China and Russia, Taiwan was the critically important. And this is, by the way, the, uh, I was very much convinced that the Decision of the American intelligence to start to publish on a daily basis the information that they have about the preparation of the war was very much based on the assumptions that President Putin, coming from the intelligence services, cannot start the war in the absence of surprise. And they were signaling to him, we're not surprised. We, We know what you're going to do. But the war started. And now when it started for the United States, but also for Europe, the idea is that this war should end the way to Made a point for China that uh, in a certain way going to Taiwan is not a great idea. So this is why, nevertheless, that this conflict in a certain way is far away uh, uh, from Taiwan. It is very clear that everybody who is trying to understand how the end of the war is going to affect international politics all the time is making the parallels between
1: Ukraine and Taiwan. And the only thing we know to expect is to expect change, you know, the unexpected. In fact, there are several key elections coming up in the next uh, year or so. And in Taiwan, a kind of a rise in nationalism could affect this entire balance.
2: Totally. This is one of the interesting possibilities for us to make sense of what was going on. Normally, when we're thinking about 2023, we're trying to see how certain trends that we have seen in 2022 are going to continue or going to be disrupted. But particularly my understanding of the development of the situation is very much run by the idea that in order to understand 2023, we should be able to see it from the perspective of the 2024, and particularly from the perspective of several critical elections that are going to take place in 2024, and which are going to affect uh, the policies uh, and the conduct of the war. Because this is the difference between the wars and the elections. We never know when the war's are breaking up. We don't know when they're going to end up, but it's, we know when basically the votes are going to be counted in certain places. So look at 2024. You're going to have presidential elections in both Russia and Ukraine in March 2024. You're going to have parliamentary elections most probably in UK. You're going to have European elections for European Parliament. You're going to have elections in Taiwan in which if you're going to have a pro-independence candidate winning, it's really going to affect very much also the way Chinese is not simply what is happening in Taiwan, but what is happening basically also in Russia and Ukraine. Of plus you have the American elections, which are going to be critically important uh, for the way the American administration basically is going to behave with respect to this war. So in my view, strangely enough, ballot boxes these days is quite often the places where the war starts, but also the war ends.
1: There is so much there. I want to pick up on some of those areas. And I also want to thank the audience because questions are already coming in. Let's go back to elections and what's coming up. Let's go to Russia. I mean, who dares oppose Putin in any major sense? Is he vulnerable politically, do you think?
2: Listen, interestingly enough, of course, the popular saying is that there are two things that you cannot choose in Russia, your president and your parents. Uh, But what is critically important is that while Russia is not a democracy, elections have been always very important for the legitimation of President Putin. Every election was serving to show the people that there is no alternative to Putin. And on these elections, uh, this is not simply, is there going to be a candidate? I don't believe that the elections are going to be organized if Putin is running, uh, that uh, he's going to lose the elections. But for the first time, President Putin is going to be challenged, not so much from those who said, why did you start this stupid war, but also those who are saying, why you're not winning this bloody war. So for the first time, the criticism to Kremlin are coming not simply from the liberal sources but also from a much more extreme nationalistic position, saying, okay, you started, but why are you not winning? And this creates a moment of vulnerability. It also creates a moment of vulnerability because the Russian population was kind of quite ready to leave with the idea of special operation, something like the large version of Crimea, uh, where basically the Russian army goes, succeeds in several weeks, and the people are just going to cheer it in the way you're cheering as a football team. But now you have a mobilization and probably you're going to have a more mobilization and probably there are going to be more than half a billion young men that are going to be thrown uh, to the battlefield and many of them are going to be killed. This is a different social contract. And from this point of view, President Putin is vulnerable and she should try to find a way to explain to the Russians why this war is taking place. Of course, his major narrative is that he's not fighting Ukraine, he's fighting the West. But if he's fighting the West, what is the victory and in my this story to explain the people what is a victory and why they should suffer is going to be very difficult and this is why the election campaign is a moment of vulnerability and my feeling is that the Russian uh, uh, leaders uh, the Russian leader knows very well this
1: and when we think about what leaders are offering their people, Zelensky is popular of course Uh, he didn't flee he stayed he's leading day by day but at the same time he's limited in any change he can offer I assume that it's going to be very hard for him to say look we should talk to the Russians when facing re-election himself
2: totally and from this point of view it's very important that for Ukraine first it's very important to organize the elections and listen it is not easy you're organizing the elections in a country in which the majority of the population is not living in the places in which they have been living in the day the war started. Some have been emigrated, are they going to vote? Some have been moved because of, uh, uh, of occupation and uh, uh, because of the destructions. So first, and it's critically important for Ukraine to show the infrastructural capacity to organize the elections. And secondly, uh, of course, President Zelensky is very popular, but President Zelensky is very popular because he's telling his own people, I'm not going to go on any compromise. I'm not ready to do any type of a territorial concession. The moment he said, "Okay, let's see what kind of concession I can do, be sure that there's going to be another candidate which is going to run on the elections and say, no, this is not what we have been talking about. You have told to the people that we're going to liberate all our territory. And this makes me believe that for the same reasons we discussed about Russia and Ukraine, for both countries, It's going to be very difficult, first, to have any meaningful negotiations in 2023. And secondly, there is not good even possibility for the conflict to freeze in 2023 because in the elections in 2024 to a great extent are defining what is possible and what is not possible. And of course what is happening on the ground is the most important and in the wars what is deciding decisive is really uh, 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 what uh, the armies are doing. But this kind of a very important constraints made it very clear that President Zelensky is under strong pressure to stay where he is and to do what he has promised to do. And to be honest, this is also true uh, for President Putin, who is insisting we are winning, this is our land and so on. And obviously he's not winning at the moment. But he should try to convince uh, his own population that he's doing this. So I'm saying this because this type of a perspective from the elections is not going to tell us what is going to happen, but probably is going to help us to understand what is not likely to happen.
1: It seems a long time until we get to the US election, even though we know the campaigning starts pretty soon. But. Even looking towards November 2024 and a possible return of Trump or simply a return of a Republican candidate who's not inclined to fund and back Ukraine, I suppose that looms over Ukraine, doesn't it? In the sense that without US backing, without that military backing, it's so much harder to keep going.
2: Totally. Listen, uh, Ukrainian army is really giving an incredibly uh, uh, impressive fight, but they cannot uh, succeed in the absence of uh, American weapons; and they cannot succeed uh, succeed in the absence of the financial support coming from outside. Thirty percent of the economy of the country is destroyed. Basically, there are cities that do not function. So from this point of view, this is critically important. And this is interesting. It's not simply that Republicans can say, we're not going to give you more weapons. This is not so easy to be done. But during the election campaigns, uh, what probably the Republican candidate, and by the way, nevertheless, who he is will probably to do is said, oh yeah, it's Putin war, but it's also Biden's war. And President Biden is going to be very strong press, not to allow two things to happen. If basically Ukraine is going to lose, he of course is going to be under strong pressure. But secondly, on the other side, the American public is not interested in the American troops to take part in the war. So this is why for Biden is extremely important uh, Ukraine to win, but at the same time, the Americans to be sure that we are not moving to the World War Three. So, for all these players, as I was trying to uh, to show, they are very important constraints and very important things that they want and they don't want to happen, just on the eve of their elections.
1: Let's bring in some of what our audience has been bringing to the conversation because they're very engaged and. Actually, there's a lot of questions on your idea of the middle powers reasserting themselves. and I think one is so Bettina asked, for example, do you see the middle powers grouping together, aligning? And I think actually that's not what you're saying, isn't it? But, But do explain. Listen, I don't see them
2: aligning. Funnily enough, they're also competing very much with each other. What they share very much is the desire to be at the table. Because what middle powers has learned is that when you're not at the table, you're at the menu. Uh, And this is what they really want to change. But at the same time, they're neither coming with common ideas, outside of the ideas that they're going to have uh, and should play a much more important role, nor they're basically sharing the same interests. Because some of these middle powers are also in a competition with each other. Uh, and this is the interesting story about it. As I said, middle powers is not the return of the non-alignment movement. Uh, as you know, some of these middle powers are allied powers. Turkey is a member of NATO. What is important for all of them is to show that their foreign policy is very much... Formulated and very much decided in their own capitals. And they have the capacity, at least if not to shape the world, to shape their regions. So you have a lot of ambition, you have a lot of activism. From time to time, these powers, of course, can end up uh, uh, with a certain ad hoc coalition on certain issues, but there is also a lot of competition and a lot of mistrust between the middle powers themselves. For example, for sure, Israel is a middle power. Iran is a middle power too. Turkey is a middle power. So uh, even just in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia is a middle power. All these countries you're not going to see basically going together and to join one and the same policy. But the only thing that is critical in the behavior of the middle power is that they don't believe that they're going to be benefited if the world simply go back to the Cold War as they knew it.
0: of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers 3 months of access for just 99 cents that's right 3 months for only 99 cents with the code squared simply visit Marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV
1: This is a great question from Claire. Who do you think will be the most important middle power in the next 10 years?
2: Uh, it's a good question. I'm not sure that I can give you a good answer. Uh, because it might be one of the interesting stories about middle powers is that while they're active, while they're important, most of them are also kind of quite vulnerable. They're also quite fragile. And Turkey is a great example. In a certain way, you have a country that really manages to play a very important role in different conflicts, but this is a country which is not at peace with itself. This is a country in which basically is very much divided in the way it sees its future. So this is true for Brazil, this is true for India. Uh, In my view, what is interesting about the middle powers is that in most of the cases, when they have a really clear strategies, these strategies are very much regional strategies. So when you're asking who is going to be the most important middle power, my idea is that the most important middle power is going to emerge in the world, in which basically the United States and China are not going to be the most involved. Paradoxically, European Union and countries like Germany, like United Kingdom, like France, are middle powers. So I cannot answer you to your question because all these countries has a lot of strengths and kind of a lot of important positioning but all of them are very vulnerable.
1: I think you mentioned Germany for the first time there. And I think you consider Germany to be a middle power. So it has separate interests and separate influence, even from its position within the European Union. And and Germany, of course, very, very conscious of those uh, World War and Cold War echoes. But we've seen with its struggles over gas, over energy, it's playing a really difficult game.
2: Listen, for Germany, it was very difficult because in a certain way, all countries, and particularly all of Europe, was shocked by this war. But the world that basically was buried in February uh, 2024 was the Germ- world in which Germany was feeling very comfortably. And you can see that suddenly Germany, which was uh, the one that very much benefited from the post-Cold War world, uh, if the end of history was an American book, it was a German reality. In a way, Germany was very much enjoying this world, doing very well in it. Suddenly, uh, Germany was pressured and basically had been challenged on all fronts, on one level during the war. Germany understood that, contrary to its own conviction, military power mattered. And it is better to have it. And the decision of the German government to invest 100 billions in its defense capabilities that came up the, day, the week after the war, was uh, reflecting on several realities. One is the Russian aggression. The other was the fact that now President Biden went and basically stayed with Europe. But what was going to happen if this has happened when President Trump was in office? And certainly that even, If Germany decided not to arm itself, probably some other European countries are going to do it. And then the the relevance and the influence of Germany in the European project is going to be diminished. So for Germany it was big. And then suddenly all the German industrialization strategy, all the German transformation strategy, particularly climate policies, were based on the idea that they have a guaranteed cheap Russian gas coming from the pipelines. And it was not there anymore. Uh, what was before economic interdependence perceived to be a source of security suddenly starts to work as a major vulnerability. And secondly, what makes Germany very different than most of the other European countries is that Germany is very much depending on the Chinese market. 40-50% of the profits of some of the major German companies depend on China. And Germany was seeing the world in which the relations between China and the United States are becoming more and more tense, and when we basically can expect a major technological decoupling between the Americans and the Chinese. So if you're going to ask me which was the country which was most shattered by what happened in 2022, uh, outside uh, of Ukraine and Russia, I'm going to tell you Germany.
1: Yeah, and what you've just said now, Ivan, suddenly made me think about the fact that in the 21st century, this is supposed to be the time at which we come together to tackle climate change. Well, it has to be the time in which we come together to tackle climate change. The next century isn't going to be good enough. And yet here we are dealing with a crisis that is so very 20th century. The war uh, that Russia has visited on Ukraine. So so that sense of psychological readjustment, I know we're, we're, we're 10 months into this, but it's still there, that struggle.
2: No, no, this is an extremely important issue. And this is extremely important issue because first psychologists have been telling us for a long time that when uh, an individual or society is faced with a threat, uh, that is the result of the human agency and the threat that is basically much more the result of a broader processes, nature, and so on, it is much more ready to react and much more ready to mobilize around responding to the human threat. So the moment the war came, many other things, including climate change for many of the countries became uh, less important, particularly countries around the war. Secondly, what was very interesting, and I COVID was already a very good signal for this, If we're going to have this conversation five years ago, and you were going to ask me what kind of crisis basically is going to push people to cooperate more, countries to cooperate more, I was going to tell you probably some type of a big epidemics, because here you do not have geopolitical interest, you're doing this, you're doing that. And then we saw that we didn't cooperate much in response to COVID. So suddenly... Uh, you have this story in which, while everybody understands that climate change is a big issue, we are much more trying to solve other issues. And this is a story that can basically create a major tensions within the generations. Because to a great extent, climate issue is also a generational problem. And to a great extent, this war is the war of the last Soviet generation. In a certain way, the resentment that President Putin had been experiencing, this talk about... Uh, uh, Ukrainians being Russians, this is very much the resentment of a particular generation, uh, and as a result of it, this is a kind of a conflict that is also going within our society because it is asking the question: What is the priority? What we really fear? And this is in my view the big change that we experience and not a good one. If before people were dreaming about the future. Now we're defining the future very much of what we want to avoid, kind, of what we fear about. And this kind of a fear of the future is a new reality that they find quite uninspiring. inspiring, let's put it like this.
1: We've talked earlier about this requiring flexible and sophisticated thinking and maybe new thinking and a willingness to reshape institutions. I mean, are there leaders that you are impressed by who are coming into their strengths, maturing, but you would point to them as, giving us hope. Now listen, uh, in a certain way, one of the important things
2: about the war is that we can talk about economies, we can talk about structural reasons, uh, but you understand how much individual leaders matter. You understand how much their judgment about particular situations and about uh, particular decisions are critically important. Listen, the story of this war was going to be very different if President Zelensky have decided to follow some of the advices coming from his Western crisis to advisors to leave Kiev and to go to VIV because the threat for Russians occupying Kiev was very high. It was basically just two sentences. This was just when he said, I don't need uh, a lift. I basically uh, need an ammunition that allowed Ukraine to be what we're seeing now. From this point of view leadership, matters and their leaders, which in mind were doing things. Listen, even when we talk Germany, I do believe that, for example, Habeck uh, was trying to use this crisis to try to see to the, his constituencies, to the voters of the Green Party, listen, this is a different world. We care about climate, but basically, <laughs> The most important thing about climate today is that it's a climate of war and we should try to basically find a way to respond both to the Russian aggression and to climate change. Uh, In many respects, of course, for President Biden, what was interesting is that when the war started, he had the feeling that he's back in the world that he knows because he was very much socialized during the Cold War. But as I told you, there was a level of flexibility and carefulness. With the way uh, the Biden administration was dealing with this crisis that we had not seen in previous administrations. There was this kind of an interesting story of basically they knew that some major confrontation has started, but they were also quite aware that neither their own publics nor the world is going to forgive anybody which is going to push the war to its extremes. But it is such a difficult world and it's so difficult, really. I don't envy people that should have. It. Take decisions today. It is not simple. It was very easy from the point of view of moral values, but the complexity of the problem is really staggering.
1: That's so right. The complexity of the problem is really staggering. And just to say to the audience, we welcome your thoughts about uh, what's happening, where our attention should be focused. And what, if anything, gives you hope about where we are now? I have a question, Ivan, for you from Angelo, who says, is it feasible to think of the G20 as a world government?
2: No, I don't believe that we're going to see G20 as the world government, but it is also very clear that G20 is the most legitimate forum that we have today. That basically the United Nations, because of the special position of the Security Council, where five countries basically have the right and power to veto everything. He's lost a lot of his legitimacy. So from this point of view, G20 is the place where you're really negotiating. But G20 cannot become the world government because G20 is also very much the place where different middle powers and very big powers are competing with each other. So this is the place where most of the issues are going to be seriously discussed and probably this is the only place where you can achieve certain consensus uh, but otherwise, I don't see the possibility for the world government at this moment, neither coming from G20 or any other forum. From this point, of view, the delegitimation of the United Nations as a result of this war is something that was not talked about. Because listen, this is a war that had been started by a permanent member of the United Nations and basically have been using its veto to paralyze the organizations any time it wants. And also, I'm very much afraid that this war is also going to break and to very much increase the proliferation of the nuclear weapons in the world. Because one of the things that many people are getting out of the Ukrainian tragedy was, were Ukrainian right when after the end of the Cold War, they decided to give the nuclear arsenal for the promise of the other powers? that they're going to guarantee their territorial integrity. So this part of it, that sovereignty more and more means having a nuclear weapon. Unfortunately, this is, this is one of the sad things that is also going to be an outcome of this conflict.
1: Yeah, it's really important to reflect on the reverberations, the consequences uh, for decisions that are made in other capitals. Um, let me bring you a question from Joseph. He's been listening to you saying, you know, the middle powers have their own interests. But he asks, are the middle powers paying enough attention to the threat that's posed to them by unchecked aggression by Russia and China? Listen, they're different.
2: There's some middle powers which are very much aware of this, particularly those who are closer to Russia and China. And they're those who basically believe that, and this is something very important that I do believe we're going to see more and more. And this is what I'll define as geographical resentment. When you talk to many people, for example, in Africa, and say, listen, but this is not a morally difficult case. You have a powerful empire that basically decided to invade uh, its neighbor. Why it is so difficult for you to respond? For them, part of the answer is why Everything that happens in the West, in Europe is important. Why, for example, what is happening in Ethiopia is not important, where more people have been killed. How it happens that basically when these wars should show the world that any European problem is the world problem, but the problems of the world does not need to be European problems. And this is almost a quote uh, that uh, I'm making from, uh, uh, from the Indian uh, foreign minister that was quoted by Roger Cohen in the piece in the New York Times. So from this point of view, part of the tension is that other Europeans, Americans should understand that probably for them, uh, Russia-Ukrainian conflict is the most important conflict, but for many others, the other conflicts which are closer to home, that they are critically important and they have the feeling that basically this was neglected by both Americans and Europeans. And this is a new reality in a certain way. And this is a moment in which we're starting to realize that, listen, in the beginning of the 20th century, the world war was the order of European empires. And during the Cold War, while Europe, neither the Soviet Union nor the United States had been classical European powers but Europe was the major theater on which they had been clashing. The Cold War was about Berlin. And then after the end of the Cold War, Europe has the feeling that we're probably not at the center of the world, but we'll abort the world to come. We come with these postmodern, post-sovereign states. Part of the message that the war is giving to us is that for many outside of the West, the message is you're not so important. And I believe this is part of this revolt of, uh, of the middle power saying, the most important place for us is the place where we...
1: You're identifying the fact there are many voices in the global South who would say, we've been ignored for too long. And here we go again. Especially when you look at something like climate change and the impact and the struggle for food and for water. So there's a, there's a kind of resentment there, which is entirely justifiable.
2: No, no, listen, this is the problem. This is a very justifiable resentment. On the other side, I don't believe that these countries are going to make their life easier uh, if they said, I'm not interested in anything that is happening in Europe should be basically a European problem. And this is, uh, there was a famous German sociologist from the 20th century whose definition of power, uh, uh, Nicholas Wollman, who said, the power is the capacity to overthrow your problems on others anybody who have been working in the hierarchical organizations know is that the really powerful person is who said, no, no, this is not my problem, it's your problem. Uh, and from this point of view, I don't believe for a long time, both Europeans and Americans have been living in the world in which you can overthrow your know, problems on others. For example, the global financial crisis starts, and certainly, obviously, it started in the United States, but it was up to the others also to help uh, the most developed world to solve the crisis. Now this is starting to change, but the real risk is that this activism and sovereignism of the middle powers does not promise necessarily a better world or more cooperative world. Uh, We can see much more fragmentation. and the fact that there is no one power that dominates or well, there are not going to be two powers uh, conflicting with each other, I mean, China and the United States dominating, does not mean that we're going to have a world in which cooperation is going to be easier.
1: And talking about fragmentation and competing interests, there's another interesting question coming from our audience uh, via the Ask Questions uh, tab here. Do keep them coming. We have another 10 minutes or so. Will any countries outside the West care if China invades Taiwan?
2: I'm sure that the Japanese uh, are going to be very, very concerned if this is going to happen. I'm sure that South Koreans are going to be very, very concerned. The problem is that you're also intervening when you believe that you can make a difference. And this is what basically makes the position of the United States different than many other countries. Listen. There are some of the small East European countries which were most concerned of what happened. If you're living in Lithuania or Latvia or, Lit- uh, or in Estonia, for you, what was happening in Ukraine was just kind of a reminder what, uh, reminding you what has happened to your country some decades ago. But could this country on their own respond? So from this point of view, the response is not simply the result of how concerned you are but also how much you believe that your response is going to change the situation on the ground. And from this point of view, the capacity is very important for understanding what is going on. And from this point of view, this was also one of the major failures uh, of Russian President Putin in this war. Because before the war started, many people who didn't like Putin's regime and so on, they believed that probably Russia is not economically the most... Dynamic and the most interesting country, but they have a strong army. They can intervene in Syria, they can intervene here and there. And suddenly, Russia's soft power, which was so much rooted in the power of the Russian military, was exposed by the Ukrainians as being simply a balloon. And in my view, this is also critically important. It is not enough simply to try to show that you want to do something. It's very important to show the capacity to do it. And middle powers also have the risk to end up in a situation in which Russia is, to try basically to take the initiatives and after that not being able to realise them.
1: We'll stay with Russia because a question just come in saying, are comments that Putin's regime could collapse overblown? Listen,
2: Putin's Regime can collapse. The problem is that we don't know when, and this is, uh, this is the most important issue. There is a decay of the regime, and this decay of the regime started uh, much earlier. And in a certain way, one of the ways to understand what was going on is to try to understand that Russia was acting out of the fear. The time was not on its side. Uh, and people are underestimating some very profound fears. Uh, in Putin's understanding of the world. For example, President Putin, three months before the war, on uh, three different occasions, was making one and the same statement. He said at the end of the 19th century, the famous Russian scientist, Mendeleev, predicted that in year 2000, there are going to be 500 million Russians in the world. And now there are only 150 million because of the World War II, because of the revolution and so on. So this kind of a fear of a demographic decline, Russia is a shrinking population, explains two important things. In a certain way, Ukrainians have to be Russians because they're not enough Russians. But secondly, if you had noticed, one of the most important things that we see during the war was uh, the decisiveness and uh, kind of Radicalism with which the Russian army kidnapping Ukrainian kids and they created and they basically voted a special legislation allowing Russian families to adopt them. So in a certain way, this is also war very much being provoked by the fear of a demographic decline. And this type of fears, this slightly like the morning wars in the United States where different Native American tribes were fighting for war just basically to kidnap uh, people from the other tribe because they didn't have enough people. I believe this is also something that is typical for the world in which we're living. Because in 19th century and 20th century, Russia was famous for having more soldiers than guns. And now for the first time the question is, are they enough men? Is demographically Russia able to defend its power, its position in the world in a situation in which the country is losing population.
1: It's such a multiple tragedy, isn't it? For Ukraine, for Ukrainian people who've been overrun, tortured, killed, but for all those families where the young men have been sent to the front lines, sometimes to be slaughtered.
2: Totally. And listen, this is a tragedy and this is coming in a moment in which, for example, when we're talking about uh, Russian regime collapsing, listen, of course, Russia gets a lot of money out of the prices of oil and gas in the first six months of the war, some of them. Probably they're not not going to have. But Russia lost a lot of people who left the country because of the war, because they didn't want to be associated with this, or because people didn't want to serve in the army. This is not easy to replace, these well-educated people. And for example, in the last 30 years, even Putin's regime had managed to create some good universities, certain type of companies that had been competitive on global level. 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 All this is over. And from this point of view, you should also try to see all these people that believe that, regardless of the regime, that you can be not interested in politics, but I can do something that matters. It's not there anymore. Uh, And these internal divides, and by the way, this is also true for Ukraine. You have all these young women with their kids living the country. You have all these men that are fighting or staying in the country in order to help the war. Listen, this is going so much to affect the social structure of society, regardless when the war is going to end and how this is going to end. And uh, this really tragic aspect of the war in my view is quite lost when we're just interested in uh, what is happening on the battlefield.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad we've been able to start looking at that and want to ask you, Ivan Prashtev. What do you think is the best possible outcome for Russians, for the Russian people over the next five years? I I appreciate that's a really, really huge question. But just some thoughts about what the Russian people need. Listen, it's very difficult to
2: speak on behalf of the Russian
1: people. This is, and Russian people are different people.
2: Russian people are people that have been raping in Ukraine. Russian people are also people who basically protested the war, and people like Navalny that basically have been arrested. So Russian people is not one person. One of the difficulty of the situation is that I do believe it's very important for the West to insist that it is Putin's war. Because he started it without asking uh, Russian people, and the truth is even that some of his elites were surprised. But for Russians to understand that also this is a Russian war, that in a certain way there was many things happening in the Russian societies, not simply in the last 30 years, but probably in the last uh, century, that made this war possible. And this kind of a conversation is not easy. And this is not easy because Listen, I'm not buying uh, the idea that what is going to happen to Russia is going to be the same what happened to Germany in 1945, for one simple reason. Probably, if uh, Hitler has a nuclear weapon, there are not going to be parades in Berlin. It's much more up to the Russians to try first to change power, but secondly, to decide what they want with this power. And this war was very much the birth of the new Ukrainian political nation. But strangely enough, this war is also going to shape very much the next Russia's political identity. And it could be different. We don't know how it's going to end up. It can end up as even more nationalistic and kind of a frustrated uh, empire. It can end up as a much more open and uh, kind of a much more friendly place, but it's not up. This cannot be done from outside. And this is going to be difficult for the Russians. I don't believe that you can make identity only based on guilt. You also need pride. and how. Russians are going to find a way to mix the guilt that and shame I do believe many of them feel about what is happening now and what they did in Ukraine with the pride that they need in order to create a positive identity. This is a difficult question.
1: My final question for you, Ivan Kraschev, is about the future of Ukraine. We've already talked about the fact that both Putin and Zelensky, the two presidents, neither has any real political incentive to compromise. So it's hard to see a way through there. But for Ukraine, do you feel in Europe a willingness to stay with Ukraine? There'll be the rebuilding of Ukraine, the refinancing of Ukraine. It is a long-term mission. I suppose I'm asking you about Ukrainians, but I'm asking you about Europeans embracing Ukraine and that being sustainable. Do you feel that?
2: Listen, uh, on one level, Europeans understand that uh, there is not an option simply to forget about Ukraine. Ukraine has become part of European Union without being a member, and basically it's not simply about money and weapons. But on the other side, of course, Ukrainians cannot expect that Ukraine is going to be the only problem that Europeans are going to be interested in. And we know very well how the public opinion is ready to shift uh, its priorities and its obsessions. One year ago, the only talk was about COVID, now it's about the war, but it was going to be in two years, it was going to be in three years. What in my view is also changing very much is that Ukrainian society is not going to go back where it was. Listen, all these people that have been fighting the war, that have been risking their life, they're going to have a totally different demands to their politicians. So this is not simply rebuilding. This is basically creating a totally different country. And this is also not going to be an easy uh, 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 easy situation because, uh, as we know, this kind of a post-conflict society in which people believe that they have sacrificed enough and they have the right to a totally different life is going to be difficult. So one of the things that the might is going to be most difficult for Ukrainians is to realize that while the European governments, the in my general, are going to stay with Ukraine, Ukraine is not going to be in two or three years as important as it is now. And uh, the most important is that they should be ready to do it to a great extent by themselves, not on the level of finance and uh, 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 simply rebuilding, but also on the level of deciding what is the most important for them. But this is true for everybody in a certain way. Uh, this is uh, this is not going to be simply the problem of, uh, of Ukraine. As I said, Germany is going to decide on their new identity. United Kingdom, you can see basically have been facing and going through this period. So we entered the level in which basically identity politics is now very much uh, at the center of international politics. And the most important is, who are you really?
1: That is a good note for us to end. Ivan Krashtov, this has been the most fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your insights and readiness to range widely across world politics and possibilities. It has been so brilliant to have you. And I also want to thank you, the audience, for your contributions, for the questions that have come in and enabled us to develop this conversation in the way that we have. So thank you all. I'm Philippa Thomas, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.